Warning, this episode contains some strong language. Listener discretion is advised. Hello, and welcome to Tales from the Trunk, reading the stories that didn't make it. I'm Hilary B. Bisniex. On today's show, we have a good friend and World Fantasy Award-winning author, C.L. Polk. C., welcome to the show. Oh, thanks, Hillary. I'm glad to be here. Absolutely. I'm super excited. Um, I've, I've told this to basically everybody I've had on the show so far, but you were, like, top on my list of names when I was like, oh, I should actually make this podcast a thing. And I think I was contemplating this podcast right as I was reading your debut book, Witchmark. And I was like, oh, the sequel's coming out next year. I can get C on right in time for the sequel. <sighs> Yay! So I'm very excited. We'll make sure to have some time to talk about that later. But in the meantime, why don't we get into the reading? You let me know right before the show started that we're going to be hearing an excerpt of a piece called Memory and a Monkey, is that correct? Yes. Excellent. And is there anything before we get in the reading that we need to know about this? Let's see. It's a near-future science fiction story. Uh, I guess that's it. Perfect. All right. Ready when you are. Okay. When Jens touched the call screen beside Sweet B, someone started screaming. Cooper backed up and grabbed for his service pistol, but relaxed out of his stance when a woman with glossy black hair and straight-across bangs opened the door. "'Tomorrow, Kendrick?' Jens asked. "'I'm Detective Jens, and this is my partner, Detective Cooper.' The shrieks continued in an ear-splitting pitch. "'Yes, I've been expecting—' "'Sonny!' Tomorrow <laughs> snapped. "'Stop that!' Silence fell. Jens shook his head as if a change in pressure troubled him. Cooper remained impassive. "'I'm sorry!' The girl apologized and stepped back. The wet earth and green smell increased as they walked inside. Cooper looked up at beams and swings mounted from the walls and the roof, and tropical plants nearly obscured the walls, trained away from windows and skylights. "'Come here, baby!' she crooned, and a blur landed in her arms, resolving into a furry monkey with a shock of black hair like a square-topped butch cut. It turned its golden face towards Jens and Cooper and hissed. "'Now don't be like that!' Tamara scolded, cuddling the creature as if it were an infant. She turned into the jungle-like living room. The monkey glared balefully over its shoulder at the officers, who glanced at each other before stepping inside. "'That's an unusual pet, Miss Kendrick,' Jen said. "'It's George's,' Tamara said, seating herself in a plush upholstered chair with a back that rose and scrolled to one side like a calla lily. "'I'm George's roommate, because I can put up with the monkey king here,' And George himself, who has a collection of habits guaranteed to leave him unmarried if he doesn't domesticate. Cooper took a moment to glance around at the large room. The place looks quite tidy, if you ask me. How long has George been missing? Oh, I don't mean squeezing the tube in the middle habits, Tamara laughed. You'd have to know George. Cut that out! The last was addressed <laughs> to the monkey, who was trying to unfasten the top button on her blouse. You little pervert! Men, they're all the same, Cooper said. Tamara laughed and leaned forward picking up a box of cards from the glass-top table. "'George has been gone for two days, and not a word to me about going anywhere. I came home, and Sonny was hungry and upset. Does Sonny want his cards?' she cooed, and the monkey grabbed for them. "'What kind of monkey is he? He looks like, you know, an organ-grinder monkey with a little cup?' 
Chamara looked up from her bridge shuffle, brown eyes surprised under Betty Page cut bangs. Exactly, Detective Cooper. Thank you. That's exactly what he is. She handed the cards to the monkey, who immediately turned them over in his little hands and sorted through them one by one. He's a crested capuchin monkey. He is an experimental animal. George has had him for five years. He's done a lot to care for him, Jens commented. Sonny smiled a wide monkey grin and handed Tamara a card. Thank you, Sonny. Good boy, she said. It's like having a very active, nonverbal three-year-old. Good boy, Sonny, she exclaimed as the monkey gave her another card. What were we talking about? George's habits, Cooper said, before Jens could open his mouth. Oh, right, Tamara said, wrestling the monkey into a more comfortable position on her lap. Well, George is a genius. If I want to look something up, I don't check the internet. I ask George. He knows a little something about everything, and he can remember where he found it. So you're saying he's a bit of a nerd? Jens asked, glancing at Cooper. Tamara accepted another card from Sonny. George is a good-looking guy, and he's not bad with people, but... He's particular sometimes. How do you mean? George never cracks a book unless it was a study weekend, Tamara said. And then it was absolutely no music, no phone, no sound, no distractions. Mostly I'd keep Sonny out of his way, but he's a noisy little bugger sometimes. Who's my smart little boy? She accepted another card from him. Anyway, Sonny got a little rambunctious. George would come unglued. Oh, good boy, Sonny. It had to be silent? Cooper asked. Yes, and he'd keep his room carefully controlled. Blackout, blinds, full-spectrum lighting. And he'd take pills to stay awake, and he'd read for hours, but he'd never write anything down. Then he'd sleep for 16 hours straight and go back to usual. Oh, Sonny, she said as a monkey fumbled a card out of his hands. I'll get it. No, don't! But Jens had already leaned forward. Sonny screamed and launched himself from Tamara's lap, scattering playing cards as he leapt on Jens and grabbed double fanfuls of his wispy blonde hair. Sonny, no! Tamara cried, tossing the cards she held on the coffee table. She reached out, trying to pry the monkey's little fists from Jen's hair. Let go! Let go this instant! Sonny twisted and wrapped his arms around Tamara's neck, wailing as if he'd been cruelly tortured. You don't fool me, you little faker! Tamara scolded. In your room, now! The monkey dashed out of her arms and into a miniature pagoda nestled among palm trees. Tamara stalked after the creature and closed the door, then rushed back to where Jen sat. I am so sorry, Tamara said. He's very protected. I'll get an ice pack, she said, and rushed to the kitchen. Cooper pitched his voice low, below the whir of the ice machine and running water. Stupid question, Jens. What? Did you see the card the monkey dropped on the floor? Jens stared at him in disbelief. Just answer. The eight of spades. Why? Cooper pointed at the fan hand of cards tomorrow dropped on the table. Does that look like ace through seven to you? <laughs> Cooper lay on his side, his head propped up on one hand, the other resting on the dome of his wife's belly, and asked, Do you remember being born? Do you want to know what it's like? Eko turned her head to look at him. I just wondered if he, or she, she interrupted with a grin, or she would remember, Cooper finished. We don't know, she said. But if it's inherited, I know, Echo said gently, if. They said nothing and watched the lights from a passing car travel around the walls, a splash of moss green in the gray. I was frightened, she said. It's an awakening. Before that, it's a dream. It's warm, and you don't think. And then it was fear and pain. Was it bad? As it was happening, it was terrifying. The world crushing me, driving me out. But I wanted to go, too, if only to escape it. And then... Eko half sat, 
stacking the pillows beneath her. I know what it was now. I had to breathe air. I wasn't a fish any more. It was like a tearing sensation. A great rush of air, and the breath came out as a scream. And then I was in my mother's arm and raising a ruckus. Things mm-hmm. got easier after that. It'll be like that for her. Or him, Eko said, and rolled over to kiss Cooper. It was like that for you, too. You just don't remember. Jens tossed an orange at Cooper, who tied it neatly and tore the skin open with his thumbs. He dropped the rind into the basket next to his desk and sat back, busily removing all the white pith off the outside. That is so picky, Jens said. <laughs> I don't like how it tastes. Thanks for breakfast. You can get the coffee later. What are you reading? The paper. Frankenstein band. Jens snorted. You and your politics. Genetic altering makes you crazy. Two words. Wilson Curtis. They didn't say Wilson Curtis was crazy. They said he wasn't human. And this law will make it so the modified aren't legally people. I'm not going there, Jen said. How hot are you for the Chen case? We have to make the routine queries, at least, Cooper said. He probably went somewhere, party for the weekend, whatever. He'll turn up. I agree, (laughs) Cooper said, but Tamara thought it was unusual. How's your head? Ah, little beast. Jen's grouse, peeling his own orange. It only hurts when I touch it. I thought he'd ripped out hunks of my hair. Not like you can spare any. Oh, fuck off. <laughs> Jens combed his hair back, revealing a heightened forehead where before his hair flopped right back to where it was. Have you tried calling the parents yet? Left a message. Okay. Then what first, smart guy? Uh... Just then, the phone rang. Jens held up one orange-juice-covered hand, and Cooper leaned forward to answer it. Detective James Cooper? Yes, I am. Is this Mrs. Chen? Yes. His roommate was concerned enough to call him. Certainly. Thank you, Mrs. Chen. You have a good day, too. Cooper hung up and ate a section of orange. So, George Chen case is closed? Chen's asked. It seems like it, Cooper said. I'll handle the report. Eco sat by the window, looking out at the ocean and traffic. An issue of Rutgers Race and the Law Review lay open across the soft cotton over her abdomen. A glass of minted tea sweated on the table beside her before the idling display screen. Cooper crouched at the wicker footstool and ran right fingers over her ankles. Hi, he said, easing cork-soled sandals off her feet. Eco opened one eye, and then the other, sooty black, smudged beneath them. She raised her hand, clutched around a black street tissue. Why tears, sweetheart? C-span. She smiled and swiped under her eyes. Did the pocket veto go through? She, she did it? Yes. We are safe. Cooper's smile reflected the joy in his wife's face. They were safe. At least they were for now. Miss Kendrick? Tamara Kendrick stood at the door of the apartment with Sonny clinging to her neck. You're here to tell me that George's parents called and said there was nothing to worry about. Cooper nodded. They did call to tell me that. Yes. They're lying, Tamara said and turned away from the door. Why would they lie about that, Miss Kendrick? Damn if I know, but they're lying. George wouldn't take off like this and leave Sonny. He loves this little monster. She scratched the monkey between his shoulders. He calls him his child substitute. Tamara frowned and then kissed the monkey on top of his black-crested head. Come in. I'll give you some lemonade and try to convince you that I'm right and they're wrong. Cooper stepped inside, weaving around a wall of vigorously growing bamboo. I'd like some lemonade. Good, because it's the real thing. Okay, one. George didn't leave a note. 
Anytime he had to go anywhere overnight, he'd tell me. If it was sudden, he would call at the very least, and he hasn't done that. Is there any reason there could be a note, but it fell down behind something? A possibility I'll grant, but I doubt it, and I'll even help let you help me look for it. Tomorrow's voice floated from the kitchen. Miss Kendrick! Cooper edged between a leather chair the same color as a Habana cigar and a four-foot-high carving of a monkey wearing a crown among palms. Tamara! Tamara! I called them, and they said George was fine. That means the case can't be actively pursued. Tamara returned with two glasses of lemonade. But you're here. Yes. Without your partner. He's rotated off to do something else. Yeah. Did George's parents claim that he was in Seattle? As a matter of fact... I defy you to find his name on a flight manifest to Seattle from here. George didn't go home for Christmas, not for Thanksgiving, nothing. He went to a wedding once, and he bitched the whole time about going. (laughs) He didn't like his family? He didn't like the interference with his work. George was an aerovirologist with a side of pharmacology and gravy, Detective Cooper. (laughs) James, Cooper said. Tamara's eyebrows went up. I'm not here officially. Tamara sank into the lily-scrolled chair, and the monkey scampered to the top. You believe me. Rather say I didn't like the fact that I didn't speak to George on the phone myself. Cooper sipped the lemonade, then drank more deeply. If I'm going to look into this, I'm going to need your discreet assistance. Tamara Kendrick's lips curved into a grateful smile. Anything I can do? Great. I need to have a look around. Okay. Tamara got to her feet and headed for the washroom. I just need a minute. Could you hold on that, Miss Sandrick? Tamara turned around, fists on hips. I really can't. Cooper nodded. All right, then. Which room is George's? On the right, Tamara said, and closed the door behind her. George's room was dim from blackout drapes and smelled of jaw sticks. Cooper wove around knee-high stacks of books to the closet, where items hung in an eerie precision, sorted by color and style. Cooper slipped a glove onto his right hand before he opened the drawers to the medicine cabinet, carefully turning the little bottle so the names showed... Ambien, Flexeril, Asifex, Doxycycline? Hmm. Cooper stepped back and walked out of the room, surprising Tamara, who held a knotted white plastic bag in her hand. What's that? Garbage from the bathroom, she said. Why are you throwing it away now? I noticed it was full. I can't ask you to let me open that bag, you know, Cooper said, but I'd appreciate it if you didn't try to hide things from me. It's not drugs, she said. Not a problem if it was. Cooper replied. But it's something, right? Tamara slumped, the bag bouncing against her calf. His parents can't know that you're involved with each other? Cooper reached out and guided her back to the living room, tugging the garbage bag out of her hand. He replaced it with a glass of lemonade. It's a secret. No one knows. Do you think that's part of why he left? I know it is, Tamara said. He found my test. Your test? Cooper repeated. And then the light dawned. Oh, you're pregnant, Tamara said, and started crying. That's it. That's all I got. All right. (laughs) Woo! So I've had on this show nine different guests before you and nine completely different kinds of stories. And once again, just the... The voice was so present, and the, like, sometimes I just have a hard time, like, 
remembering that I'm supposed to monitor for things during <laughs> a reading. And this is one of those times where I was just like, I need to know what happens next. <laughs> What's going to happen? What's going to happen? So I have to say that I love all of the... Like, I, I'm, I'm certain that in the unexcerpted version of that, there are, in the fullness of the story, things become more clear and answers um, to the importance of things become evident. But the just in the initial part, like, the world building was... I really appreciated how it just brought me so deeply into the world that I didn't have to know, like... Like, sometimes I feel like writers will do this thing where they say, like, you know, such and such made up thing, <laughs> and then they, like, explain what the thing is. Oh, yeah. Rather than letting the work, you know, explain what's important about it. And that you were letting your work do that instead was uh, just really nice, really wonderful. That's a particular habit of mine. I have this thing I say where I don't explain anything unless my editor makes me explain it. Mm-hmm. Which I think is, in some ways, the job of the editor is to say, like, you know, this is not clear and not, like, this is unclear here. So I'm wondering, much of your work that I've read has been less in the near-future sort of range I'm specifically thinking about Witchmark here yeah. and more of a more of a secondary world feel to things mm -hmm. and so I'm wondering I guess what the differences are for you between writing something like Witchmark which for listeners who are not familiar is a secondary world fantasy that is set in sort of a uh, an Edwardian London setting or Edwardian England, anyway, versus writing something like a near-future science fiction with, you know, genetic modification and a monkey that couldn't... You know, this is partly because I'm watching His Dark Materials on HBO right now, but I couldn't help but think of Mrs. Coulter's demon <laughs> as soon as that monkey showed up. Uh, Mrs. Coulter's demon had a little bit to do with it. I can... I... You know, that makes a whole lot of sense. <laughs> yeah. Let's see. When when I was writing when I was writing short stories exclusively, just writing short stories, not anything else, while I was trying to learn how to write, most of the stuff that I wrote as a short story writer was science fiction. Mm -hmm. Which, you know, I I don't even touch science fiction now. I kind of feel like I want to go back there at some point. But I was writing science fiction. I was writing near future science fiction. I was writing like far future space opera, um, mm -hmm. and and yeah, I was I was an SF writer when I was writing mm -hmm. short stories. I wrote this piece in two thousand and five, mm -hmm. and I can tell that I wrote it, you know, almost fifteen years ago because there are no scene transitions whatsoever. <laughs> mm -hmm. Like I, I don't give anybody any kind of a clue where we're going to be or what we're going to do or anything like that. I just kind of just drop straight into what it is that I'm doing. This story mm -hmm. never got past the first draft, so mm -hmm. I never, 
I never went in and set any kind of scene or acknowledged the passing of time or any of those helpful things that would, you know, kind of ground a reader in what the heck is going on here. Mm-hmm. And I, I can also tell that I wrote it um, early career because I don't, I, I, like I said, like I don't explain anything unless my editor tells me to explain. But back then I was completely horrified by the idea of being obvious so I didn't I didn't really leave a lot of clues as to what was going on either like Mm -hmm. if I were to rewrite this I would put in a lot more details to help the reader kind of stick to what's going on the tension is there the information is not Mm -hmm. yeah that is good that you said that because tension was the feeling I had through the whole reading, but couldn't, like, I couldn't stick a pin in it. I couldn't, like, say, oh, I'm feeling tense. I just felt like there was, there was an energy that was driving it forward, uh-huh. but I couldn't ever quite name what that energy was. So I'm, I'm glad that you are more articulate than I am. And also that desire to not be obvious is something that I feel really strongly. Um, And I I think it's a trap that a lot of people, a lot of early career people especially, will fall into Mm -hmm. in their art, in their writing. Yeah. Oh, go ahead. I was going to say, like, I was just, I was really too willing to pop my coat collar and be cool, you know, Mm -hmm. instead of, like, being enthusiastic about this is what's going on and blah, 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 blah. And the reason why the president pocket vetoed this thing is because a whole bunch of people who didn't actually consent to having this genetic thing done to them that enhances their memory shouldn't be something that makes them non-human. And, Mm -hmm. you know, and I don't, I don't get into the whole idea that the house is, like, completely divided by you know progressives and like real stonewalling we're gonna believe in evangelism because it's convenient for us conservatives that i was writing back in 2005 mm-hmm. <laughs> i didn't know i i had no idea i didn't know that this was going to happen right um but there's a lot of context that was missing because i was too busy being clever mm-hmm. which like Let's just say right here, cleverness absolutely has its place, but I think cleverness is also a trap. Yeah. I think cleverness is either, um, I mean, I, I think cleverness, a lot of cleverness is just like, oh, I don't want to be too obvious. And sometimes cleverness is a uh, cover for, I don't actually know what's going on. Yeah. Yeah, I, I find it kind of funny that I still remember the backstory and world-building details of this story when I I opened it up just on a whim earlier today and it all came rushing back. I was like, no, I have to read this one. Mm-hmm. It's really exciting to me personally to hear this story that you were writing in 2005 because I remember my own writing in 2005 when I first started writing as like this is a thing I want to do rather than just writing as oh I have to do this for school right and like to to recognize I think it can be really difficult for anybody in any sort of pursuit to necessarily be able to recognize their own progress right and so to have like 
to hold your story up as a mirror for me or to, um, you know, if I were to bring out some of those early, early stories to be able to hold those up, like, you don't necessarily, I don't necessarily want to reread my 2005 writing. Um, I really appreciate that you brought your 2005 writing here. And I, I imagine that you were later in your early career in 2005 than I was in mine. I had, I had made one professional sale um, by 2005, and then I kind of, I had a few years where I didn't, I didn't sell anything, not a thing, mm-hmm. <laughs> not a thing. And this was, this was the thing that I wrote, I believe, immediately after the second professional rate story I sold. Oh, nice. And, and it's one of the last short stories I wrote before I quit writing for eight years. Mm. You know, I don't think I ever realized that you had quit writing for eight years. Oh, yeah, I quit. <laughs> I quit. I um, I decided that it was bad for my health, and I stopped. And then I um, I got myself the right store-bought you know, transmitter, and I started again. <laughs> like, I literally woke up one morning, I was like, I want to write something. That's fantastic. We are we are strong advocates on this show of treating yourself right, and that means treating your brain right. And if your brain doesn't produce the right neurotransmitters in the right quantities, Storbot will always do. Yes. It's really... I think it's really great to be able to talk about that in a, in a way that is healthy. Like, mm-hmm. sometimes it... It is unhealthy for us to talk about the things that happen in our brains um, or, you know, unhealthy outside of a professional context, but to to sort of air that for other writers, because I think that's something that a lot of people struggle with. Yeah. And I think it's easier for me because I kind of got to the point where it's like, okay, I'm managing my mental health now so I can talk about being being back there but I'm not there mm-hmm. anymore so it's just kind of this intellectual thing I talk about now yeah yeah but I, it, it is like it's really it's like it's perfectly valid to say you know what I can't do this right now because other things like my brain isn't working right my body isn't working right like self care is uh I, it's, it's uh, Daniel Jose Older who says that writing begins with forgiveness. Yes, and I, which I absolutely love that I like, you know, tattoo that on my body. But like, writing any sort of art begins with like with forgiveness, and forgiveness includes being able to forgive your body for not being able to do a thing at the time, and like recognizing that. Yes, and that's that's a day-to-day thing. Yeah, yeah. The, we are recording this in right at the tail end of November, um, and so that is especially on my mind. I did, did not attempt NaNoWriMo at all this year, but I remember in years past when I did attempt NaNo that, and I've, I've never won NaNo, by the way, but I would hit a point in it where... Like, you know, you you have X many, uh, seven, 16, 67 words a day or something that you have to do for all of NaNoWriMo. Mm-hmm. And there were days where I would just, like, 
say, like, I cannot do this. And then some days where I was like, not only can I not do this, but I can't make up the deficit. Yeah. Um, and so, like, you know, I like NaNoWriMo. I like what NaNoWriMo does for a lot of people. And I'm, you know, I've over the years come to realize that it's kind of just not for me. Oh, that totally there's like pressure for, pressure in it that's just not healthy. I I think it's kind of funny and a little bit weird that you know I can look at NaNoWriMo and I was like okay fifty thousand words in a month yeah I can mm-hmm. do that I know I can do that I have done that I have the spreadsheets to prove it but when November <laughs> rolls around there's no way there's always something that yeah. is in the way of me like pulling off a productive month. I, I just can't, I can't do it. I, you know, I'm a NaNoWriMo loser. <laughs> mm-hmm. We should get, um, we, we should get buttons for the show that say NaNoWriMo loser on them. <laughs> because, Put yeah. those up in the show store. Yeah, that would be cool. Cause then I could wander around with that. And then, and then, you know, there's something to, to that as well as I can say, I've never won a NaNoWriMo. That doesn't mean I can't write books. It just means mm-hmm. that I have to do it differently. Yeah. Yeah. And that's like, I, I think that that's really important to like, you know, it, it kind of comes back to the whole idea of like, everybody has a process and everybody's process is different. And as long as the process isn't self-destructive, yeah, everybody's process is valid. Exactly. Which, you know, I, I think can sort of be expanded to everything, pretty much. Like, as long as you're, like, as long as you're not hurting yourself, as long as you're not hurting other people, chase what you need to chase. Exactly. So, one of the other things that I really appreciate about the story that you brought to this episode is that you're upfront about saying, you know, this was a first draft. And I think, I think a lot of times, especially early career, Uh it's difficult to see that a story will not work before it's been taken through revision cycles. I think especially like, I'm thinking my early career, which in 2005, I was just out of high school, I was still trying to figure out my whole life, and you know, it it was one of those things where every time I wrote a story, I would just pin everything on that story and say like, oh, you know, I gotta I gotta follow this one through because the next one like, who knows if there will be a next one. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I, um, I, I left this story as a first draft because when I got to the end, I realized that like the, the arc that I had come up with because it is it's a it's a procedural it's a police procedural science fiction novel, I'm mm-hmm. a science fiction short story. I I've written probably about six of them sitting in my truck, <laughs> <laughs> and that I realized that I had put Cooper in a position where he couldn't uphold the law that he believed in because it was unjust. But if he didn't, many, many people were going to die. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and I just kind of looked at it and I was like, you know, I, I do not have the chops for this. I'm just going to mm-hmm. write the end and I'm just going to stick it in a drawer and I'll try again some other time. I'll come back to it or something. Yeah. And I think that's, that's really great to be able to recognize that. 
Yeah, um, because I do, like, I had this almost heartless approach to short stories. Mm -hmm. Um, I had taken in advice from people who, who had said, you know, write the story, um, throw it in a drawer and forget about it, come back and revise it, do the best you can with it, and then kick it out the door and just keep kicking it out the door until it finds work or until you run out of markets. Mm -hmm. And I took that, I took that advice absolutely to heart and I became extremely mercenary about my short stories. Extremely mercenary. (laughs) Mm-hmm. Um, I had this rule I never submitted to semi-pro markets unless the magazine was run by a friend I concentrated exclusively on pro-paying SFWA qualifying markets mm-hmm. I would send the story to every single one I wouldn't self-project and say oh Ellen Datlow won't like this one no I sent it <laughs> and this was back in the day when you had to print it on paper and like put it in an envelope with a stamp I sent oh, that yeah. story <laughs> and and and, you know, when it came back, I would, like, print out another one, and I would stick it in an envelope, and I would kick it out the door <laughs> to go to the next one. And when I ran out of SFWA qualifying markets, into the trunk with it. I, yeah. was, I was finished. So it was like, I tried that. It was an experiment. It didn't work out. All fine. What's the next story? Mm-hmm. Which, not to say that that isn't a valid approach, but it is, it's a, it's a rough way to operate, especially back in... Back in the, the what the old white men would call the good old days <laughs> of printing out your manuscript and uh, maybe even printing out your manuscript or typing it up and making sure that you sent back sent them with an envelope they could send it back to you in. Yeah, I never did that. <laughs> I never did that. I never. I I just would write please recycle on my manuscripts. Yeah. And- <laughs> And just give them the envelope so that they could mail me my form rejection. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and, and and yeah, um, I I think I probably could have been a little gentler with my short stories. I probably could have, you know, I probably could have like given them more chances than I gave them, mm-hmm. um, and then I probably would have had more than two. Mm-hmm. Um. Short stories published. Short stories published in pro markets, but I was very much. I was very, I was very mercenary, and I was very like you know the story is either going to find work or I don't want people to see it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, one of the one of the bits of internet discourse that we so love to. I don't think we love it. <laughs> is always this conversation around paying artists and, you know, this attitude of, fuck you, pay me. Yes. Which, like, I think makes can make it really hard on the semi-pro markets. Like, I'm not yeah. gonna, not gonna touch the discourse around unpaying markets because I've, I've sent stories to a couple of unpaying markets. I've had stories published in unpaying markets. Uh, like, at the time I was... I was indoctrinated in the the idea of, oh, exposure is, you know, you have to put in your time and get your bylines. Right. Which, like, no, you, you should get paid. <laughs> but I think it's, like, semi-pro markets fill a really important niche because there are markets that, I'm thinking specifically of Shimmer, which... Like, oh, yes, Shimmer. We'll talk about Shimmer on this show any day. But they had just such a voice uh-huh. 
And they were just so vital, but they were... I don't remember them being a pro market for most of their existence. I think they were semi-pro and then got up to pro and then the pro rates were raised above their heads again. Right. And then they just kind of continued on where they were. Yeah. But, like, they they were, like, we are poorer for not having them. I absolutely respect Elise's decision to close Shimmer. I'm sad about it, but I absolutely respect it because that's, you know, you have to take care of yourself. Yes. But we are absolutely poorer for not having that voice being represented by a magazine. I kind of feel the same way about um, On Spec, which is a print magazine for Canadian mm-hmm. speculative fiction. And On Spec was one of the one of the the semi pro magazines that I would definitely that I would definitely um, send my stuff to. And if Shimmer had been around when I was, you know, basically trying my best to get stories published shimmer probably would have been one of the semi-pro markets that i would have that i would have sent to just because they were that good it was mm-hmm. um there there are semi-pro markets that are amazing for prestige um one of the things that i never managed to do um and i felt like i didn't have a hope in heck of doing was to have a story published in lady churchill's rosebud wristlet they oh paid, my goodness yes they paid like $10, $15 at the time. But mm-hmm. it was just kind of this thing where it was like, I don't dare, I cannot, like, <laughs> I am not worthy. <laughs> this sort of thing. But I have to point out, too, that when I was sending these stories out on paper in envelopes, pro pro rates for science fiction and ri- fantasy writers of America for short fiction was three cents a word. Mm-hmm. It, you know, and the thing is, is that there, there's always really great semi-pro magazines out there that couldn't even manage to get that, you know, that three cents a word payment up that were still really great magazines. I like to think that I slushed for one of them for a couple of years when I was working mm-hmm. with Ideomancer. Oh, yeah. And, and you know, like, we paid, like, 50 bucks. That's what we had for you was $50. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And and uh, I like to think that you know we did we did the best the best uh, submission the best curation of fiction that we could possibly do as as a semi pro and that I also like to think that you know we we did a pretty good job of that and and that and that we you know learned a lot from mm-hmm. from working with that magazine. Yeah, for sure. One of the things that I think we kind of have to like as a community of writers that we need to sort of work on for the up-and-coming writer, like the up-and-coming generations of writers, is there's this idea, I think, that's pretty prevalent that there is a quality difference between semi-pro and pro markets. Which, like, I've read some absolutely amazing stories in semi-pro markets. Shimmer, I'm looking at you guys. Yes. And I've read some, you know, total stinkers in pro-rated markets because, like, sometimes, you know, A, my editorial taste is not anybody else's editorial taste. Yes. It's not necessarily going to land with me. And B, like, you gotta fill the pages. You know, especially for the pulps, like... You've got a digest-sized magazine to put out every month, every two months, and 
you got to make word count. Yeah, and so you you you're not just you're not only picking the best stories when you're when you're selecting for a magazine. You're also trying to pick stories that kind of fit in almost a range or a thematic statement some mm-hmm. of the time and other times it's like you need you need a a a story that is like this particular word count. And yeah. so you have to go skimming through and you have to find the stories at those lengths. Um, and the thing is, is that it's also taste is really, is really subjective. I know that when For I sure. read short stories that I really like, and then I will go around to see what other people thought of the short stories that I really liked, um, that there are reviewers who do not like the things that I like at all. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, not even a little bit. <laughs> yeah. That reminds me of one of the classes that I took in my uh, creative writing program in undergrad was we read um, Bullet in the Brain, which can't remember what white guy that's by, but the it's about a, a literary reviewer who is in a bank and while it gets held up and is being a wise ass and then gets killed, and that's the whole story. <sighs> and it's it is... It's a story. It's definitely a thing that you would find on curriculums in creative writing programs. Mm-hmm. But the thing that struck me the first time I read it was somebody made a comment, and I don't remember if it was if it was a professor or if it was like this was in a book where it was talking about like had the story and then talked about the story where whoever was editorializing about the main character and said, you know, we start out with this main character who's a literary reviewer, so you already know he's a villain and you don't care what happens to him. Aww. And but... I, you know, I, I don't agree with that sentiment because I know lots of people who review stories and I care deeply about them, but I, it does sort of distill the idea of, you know, just because a reviewer doesn't like something doesn't mean it's not good. And yeah. just because a reviewer does like something doesn't mean that it is good. Yeah, and I find that I don't... Like, I, I love to read, like, speculative shorts fiction. Mm-hmm. Um, like, I like to read the stories that, that are, you know, printed out of Tor.com. I like to read stories from Uncanny Magazine. Um, mm-hmm. I think I probably go to those two magazines most often, but I, I read Faya, which is a semi-pro. Mm-hmm. And... and Absolutely a vital voice. Absolutely. But I find that, you know, the thing about reading any kind of a story is that only half of the story is on the page. The other half is in me. And if I don't have a compatible half, mm-hmm. that story's just not going to work for me. And it doesn't have anything to do with whether it's good or whether it's bad. It's just, it doesn't fit. Yeah. Yeah. For sh- for Absolutely for sure. I think inevitably when a book gets super, super hyped up. Yeah. Sometimes there will be, you know, I'm not going to name names, but I've, I've definitely heard a range of reactions to some of the, like, mega-hyped books of 2019 from this book spoke to me to I just bounced straight off of this book. Yeah, I bounce and, off books all, all the time. And all of that's valid. All the time. And, you know, books that people love. And I just, I don't have the pieces that I need in order to bring that book to me. And that's, that's fine. That's, you know, that's, it is what it is. Mm Mm-hmm. 
and it's it's also you know and, and that's important to understand as a submitting writer that your story might not land for the editor who it lands in front of it might just not land for the theme it might just be you know 300 words too long and they already have like they yeah. just needed 850 words exactly and you have a 1000 word story that they would have loved to buy yeah you know not that it is the done thing to send stories back to a market but that there are instances where a story just doesn't come to you at the right time in your life. Yes. That um, the the example that I think of personally is when I was in sixth grade, my dad tried to get me into Terry Pratchett by giving me diggers for Christmas, and I bounced off of that book in the first 20 pages the first time I picked it up. And then half a year later, I picked up one of Pratchett's adult novels. And, like, I think because there was some just, like, short, funny bit out of the middle of it that I didn't have any context for it, but it made me laugh. And I said, okay, well, I'm gonna, like, now I'm going to read this book and, you know, at this point I've read everything that Terry Pratchett ever put into print. But, like, you just have to know that sometimes a thing doesn't land at the right time and you could come back and it could be perfect. Yeah. So I've mentioned your book, uh, World Fantasy Award winning novel, Witchmark. Yes, yes. Congratulations again. Oh, thank you. I remember uh, we were all screaming on the Slack when you won. I was screaming when I won. Yes. <laughs> I, I absolutely can't imagine. I, I can't personally imagine, like, oh, they just said my name? I won a World Fantasy Award? Are you yeah. sure? Yeah, but, it was very like that. <laughs> yeah. Um, absolutely deserved... I'm, I was so excited uh, again, again and again and again. Uh, I'm, I'm still like a little bit like background giddy for you now, thinking like, oh yeah, she has a World Fantasy Award. Like, that's a big deal, and she absolutely deserves it. But you have a sequel that is coming out. Uh, this episode comes out in mid-January. Yeah. So your sequel is coming out uh, right at the beginning of February? February the 11th. And uh, can you hype us up a little bit about that? And yes, can you hype us up a little bit about that? Oh, geez. Um, <laughs> what do I say? Uh, Storm Song is, is, the, is the story. It, it's not the... Let's see. I just listened to Neil Gaiman say that your readers want you to write the same thing you did last time and it is your job as an artist not to do that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I took his advice before I even heard it. Um, I know that people are brilliant advice. really expecting what I'm doing here. Mm-hmm. Um, I had the consequences of the end of the first book to deal with and I couldn't exactly ignore them to, to do what I imagined people would want me to do which was to continue the adventures of Miles and Tristan. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I had to switch my focal point character to continue the story of the city of Kingston, which is what the, the trilogy is about, is about um, how Kingston changes in this very short period of time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we are going to follow the perspective of Miles's sister, Grace, who is in the perfect position to show us what's going on with Kingston at the time. She's politically powerful. She's influential. She's had her eyes opened to uh, some things that she didn't, she didn't really admit to or, or realize. Mm -hmm. Um, And as she is dealing with these realizations and trying to change the way that she's thinking, she's also trying to protect her country from Mm -hmm. civil upset. Because if, People, people found out the truth about what happened. They'd be really, really mad. And so she's trying to put the squid back in the box without mm-hmm. anybody finding out about the squid, while trying to to like take care of of Eland and introduce reforms that are going to make things better. And mm-hmm. so this is this is what she's trying to do. Um, and I appreciate your delicate handling of the squid because I know that. Describing the squid to somebody who has not uh, reached through the end of uh, Witchmark yeah. would be upset to know the shape of that squid. I'm not going to tell them. Like, there's just yeah. there's a spoiler embargo on this whole deal. <laughs> yeah. Um, and she's foiled by a plucky reporter character who... She, I love that. She knows because this this reporter, this photojournalist is a member of um, elite society. She's from she's from the extremely wealthy Jessup family who um, run Jessup family foods. So basically you go into a supermarket, it's only the Jessups. <laughs> the food on the on the the food on the shelves was packaged and manufactured and distributed by the Jessups. Like every move you make trying to feed yourself makes them money. That's where mm-hmm. she comes from. She defied her family because what she wanted to do was she wanted to be a journalist. And she has a connection with the um, with the reporter who was murdered in book one. Um, mm. And she is trying to find out the truth behind his murder. Listeners, you can't see this, but I am literally vibrating in my seat right now. <laughs> um, and the thing is, is that she comes to Grace with these questions and it's obvious that she knows too much and she's Mm -hmm. got to protect Avia Jessup from the forces who would probably try to kill her if they found out how much she had already figured out Um, and so I have this kind of this personal thing where you know she wants to protect this girl that she really likes and she wants to protect Elin from the knowledge that they cannot have and then the murders begin Oh. Because it's me. Of course there's a murder. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Listeners, go pre-order this book right now. We'll have links in the show notes. Uh, Winter Song is going to be out on February the 11th from Tor.com Books. And you also, I'll edit this part out later if uh, we need to embargo it, but you also have another exciting thing to announce 
for oh. the fall of 2020. Yes, and we don't need to embargo it. It's been announced. I have another book that's coming out in Perfect. an entirely different world. <laughs> yes. Which is also exciting. Um, and that's The Midnight Bargain? That's The Midnight Bargain. Fantastic. Well, uh, super excited about both of those books. I think I pre-ordered uh, Winter Song as soon as I was able to. So I'm super excited about that one. Um, and I, I remember the secret screaming and then the actual screaming when the Midnight <laughs> Bargain was announced. Yes. I, I, I did some secret screaming and then... There's this picture on the internet where it shows Baby Yoda, and the caption mm-hmm. is, how you look when you first get publishing news, and then <laughs> Old Yoda, how you look when you can finally tell people, and that was my life for weeks. Oh, super accurate. <laughs> so I think we're going to skip the time machine on this particular episode, just because we are running into our time limit, and also because I think that that is... Uh, that Baby Yoda, Adult Yoda meme is absolutely a thing that every baby writer should know. Yeah. Is, like, the the lead time when I had two years ago? Last, last year? Two years ago. Last year was Skies of Wonder. Then, uh, so two years ago I sold the story to Lamplight Magazine and it was published two months after I signed the contract and everybody, when I said, when I told people like, oh, and I have a publication date, it's June, having signed the contract in April, everybody was like, really? <laughs> that soon? And I was like, yeah, no, I don't believe it either. Yeah. Yeah, I, I kind of feel that way about the Midnight Bargain. It's like, fall 2020? Really? Wow. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, for I'm- sure really glad that we're going to get it out quickly so that I don't have to sit there and, and be all spoiler embargo mm-hmm. about the story and and people get to read it that much faster. Yeah, so good. Well, see, thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, I really appreciate your being here. I really appreciate being able to collect more writers from uh, our online writing community. Um, I think you're I think I've probably had about half of my guests have been Isle or Isle-adjacent folks at this point. Yeah. Uh, it's it's pretty great. Communities are great. Go find your community, anybody who's listening here, because they're out there somewhere and they're going to be exactly what you need. Yes. Listeners, look forward next month in February. I don't remember the exact date off of the the top of my head. But our guest next month is going to be author KB Wagers. I'm very excited about that. Mm. And, uh, yeah, super exciting. See, thank you again so, so much. Oh, no problem. Um, and thank you for bringing your wonderful Canadian vowels on this show again. Uh, always I, good for a few vowels. Yeah. <laughs> I, I experienced joy doing the episode with Premi. A couple months ago, and then I experienced joy again editing that episode because Canadians are very important to me, and hearing their their distinctive Canadian voices fills me with uh, warmth in my heart. 
before we go, can you tell listeners where they can find you elsewhere on the internet? Um, you can pretty much consistently find me on Twitter because I am there far too often. Uh, <laughs> you can find me at CL Polk. Excellent. And uh, listeners, we will also have a link to C's Twitter in the show notes. Tales from the Trunk is mixed and produced in beautiful Oakland, California. You can support the show on Patreon at patreon.com slash trunkcast. All patrons of the show now get a logo button, along with show outtakes and other content that can't be found anywhere else. You can find the show on Twitter at trunkcast, and I tweet at hbbizniex. If you like the show, consider taking a moment to rate and review us on your preferred podcast platform. And remember, don't self-reject.